portrait, and she wanted a good price. And so the fellow set up the portrait studio and got his camera and a tripod all set to go. And she says, I intend to take this portrait, have it enlarged, and put it in my living room as a tribute to me. And he says, great, great, real good. And she sits down like this. I hope you'll do me justice. And he says, you don't need justice, lady. You need mercy. (laughs) Everybody wants justice. Everybody. But these days, it seems like everybody has their own definition of justice. Um, Be nice if we could all agree what it is. Uh, I think we'd all agree that it's fairness, peace, a a genuine respect for each other. Um, There are so many words today to describe and define or words that are related to the whole concept of justice, fair play, fair-mindedness, impartiality, objectivity, neutrality, honesty, righteousness, morality, and it's all those things, and it's more than those things. For most of today's world, justice is something else. It's absent. In today's world, justice is hard to come by. When we see it and experience it, we should treasure it because it's rare. And here's a caution, one that the Apostle Paul shares. If you honestly think you can find justice in a courtroom, please think again. Trust me on this. I've been there as an observer, not as a participant But as an observer, I would wholeheartedly agree with the ancient Chinese curse, which is, may you be involved in a lawsuit and may you be right. Legal disputes are awful, and the cost is high, the cost in dollars, the cost in emotion, the cost in in relationships, and they are very difficult to quote-unquote win. Well, you say, "I'll, I'll get a good lawyer. Fine. Go ahead. And you'll do great unless somebody else gets a better lawyer. See, each courtroom and each trial is at its heart a competition. The better player wins. Not the one that's right, the one that's better. And he can do it, or she can do it, in a completely unethical manner if they can get away with it or by using a blatantly unfair advantage You and your case mean nothing to a lawyer like that. You're just another notch in his gun belt. And that's why there are so many lawyer jokes. Now, let me get serious for a moment. These are jokes. They are not facts. But how can you tell the difference between a lawyer and a dog that were both run over by a car? There are skid marks in front of the dog. Three people went swimming, an accountant, a doctor, and a lawyer. The accountant and a lawyer were eaten by sharks. Lifeguards pulled the lawyer out of the water. And one lifeguard asked the other, why didn't the sharks attack the lawyer? And the answer, professional courtesy. (laughs) Now, if you're a lawyer, and don't don't take this personally, I'm not attacking you. you're, You're probably a good lawyer, and you probably know a good lawyer. Maybe you've been helped by one. They are honest, honorable and effective lawyers, but the system in which they function is a jungle, a terrible swamp of twisted legalistic traps, landmines that that destroy people whole, 
Trust me, if you go there, you're going to need a lawyer to get you out. Why? Because a courtroom cannot tell you what is right and wrong. A courtroom can only tell you what is legal and illegal. And the difference is huge. There's a chasm of difference here, especially in today's world where the whole concept of fair-minded law has been turned on its head. Um, Really, our legal and political system today is an exact representation of Isaiah 5.20. Listen to this. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light, light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And all of us know the fruit of this. The Corinthians knew it. We surely do. All of us know truly terrible things, terrible things that are legal. And we know of wonderful things that are illegal. Let's talk about legal. Abortion immediately comes to mind. Is there anything worse? And in society today, is there anything more legal? And we know of truly excellent things that are illegal. Standing for your Christian beliefs, refusing to bake a wedding cake for a homosexual couple because it's against your personal morality. Oh, that's illegal. Likewise, evangelism. How long is it going to be before you cannot preach the gospel anymore? Because it's defined as hate speech. It's far too exclusionary. Knowing this, and perhaps you didn't know it beforehand, but knowing this, why in the world would you take a dispute to be settled in an environment like that? Would you trust the courts of men rather than the courts of God? The Corinthians did. Now, with that as a backdrop, let's look at the passage today. 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 13. It's a barn burner. Paul would get in terrible trouble preaching this passage today. Listen up. If any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you were to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulteries, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach, the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, 
is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Now, let's consider this entire passage. I want you to think about what I just read or what you just read and ponder it. Because there is one connecting theme all throughout this passage. There is one overall problem for all to see. And here it is. There was a heart cry for justice in the Corinthian church. Throughout that congregation, they all wanted justice. And what's the problem? The Corinthian Christians were looking for it in absolutely the wrong place. They were going to court instead of to Christ. Now, that's why today's passage starts out with a rebuke. In fact, if you've been paying attention during this series, you probably caught on to the fact that the entire letter to the Corinthians was a rebuke to them. The Corinthians were going about it all wrong. They were practicing church all wrong. And this letter was corrective and instructive and preventive. As a pastor, I get a kick out of this. I really do. Because at virtually every wedding I've ever officiated, someone lovingly and tenderly reads 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 8. And you all know it probably, some of you by heart. It's so nice. Here's how they read it. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It isn't proud. It does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no records of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Then all the mothers applaud. You know what it probably sounded like when Paul originally dictated it? Probably something like this. Listen, dummies. Now, wait a minute. Strike that. Let's, let's go with this. If I possess, if I possess to the poor and, and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It's not proud. It does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. Keeps no record of wrongs. Love doesn't delight in evil. Rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Corinthians, come on. Is any of this getting through? No, wait a minute. Strike that last part too. Paul probably edited out his personal emotions and went with the essential information, but it's still a rebuke. And in this culture, this was a gut punch to these people, particularly during this time. Back to our passage, verses 1 through 3. Here we go. If any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial things? Do you not know that we'll judge angels? How much more things of this life? What's with you, Corinthians? Oh, wait a minute. Strike that too. Are you nuts? No, don't say that. Don't say that. Now, what's Paul talking about here? He's talking about our universal desire for justice. It's a requirement. It's a need. It's almost basic to life. And he can't believe that the church is going to court to find it. So his rebuke, this rebuke is a total rebuke. It's logical, 
It's profound. It's convicting. And it is total. It's devastating what he says. What does he say? The godly are better judges than the ungodly. How can you argue with that? If Christians are to judge all people, why not judge themselves? How can you argue with that? Whatever your issues are in court, they're trivial compared to the greater things that you will judge in the hereafter. How can you argue with that? You will be authorized and capable because you're in a position of Christ. Christians are going to judge angels. Do you know what that means? You're going to be superior to them and evaluating them, and you can't figure out what to do with this little spat. Mighty, glorious, majestic angels... How in the world are we capable and authorized to evaluate them and not capable and authorized to evaluate ourselves? Verse 4. If you've got your Bible still open or your app still there, (laughs) just look at it. This This is sarcasm at its strongest. Here's what he says. Take my advice. Appoint the dumbest person among you and have him handle it. He'll do a better job than any judge. Wow. I mean, nothing against judges, but whoa. Now, I am not saying never go to court, especially if you're being attacked legally. You need a solid defense. Put one together. But I am saying, and Paul is saying, never take another Christian to court, especially within the church. Try to reconcile. Go to him directly or her. Try to figure it out. Go with a friend. Take someone with you. Try to figure it out. If needed, take it to the church elders and try to figure it out. See if a decision can be achieved. And if even that doesn't work, Paul says drop it. Just drop it. The bottom line, the brutal bottom line, verses 7 and 8. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. Now, I want you to think about that, because that is profound. Why would we do that? Why would we let somebody, quote-unquote, walk all over us in some kind of a dispute? Why? Because the unity of the church is more important than any settlement you could possibly achieve, any advantage you could probably be given. The unity, the love, the devotion, the function of the church is more important than anything like that. So why not rather be cheated? I mean, it's profound. Think about it. It's better to be cheated than to go to court. Better to be wronged. Here's another way to look at it. To go to court is to literally destroy the reputation of the church. And to do it in public, in front of the whole world to see and to laugh at. And what's more, verse 8 pretty strongly implies that the Corinthian churches, church were taking advantage of each other by suing them. Listen to what he says. You yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. What a mess. And why? Because the Christians wanted Justice, just like we all do. But they weren't seeking it in a Christian way. Now, that leads to the obvious question. What is the Christian way? One, face-to-face. 
one-on-ones. If that's not possible, go to someone you both respect and ask that person to help you reach a settlement. Finally, if nothing else works, take it to the elders. And both of you commit in advance to accept the decision that is made. Again, why? And I want you to really think about this. A Christian judge or counselor can do things that no regular judge can do, that no court that we can go to can provide. A counselor can, first, can and should pray for God's wisdom and will in the matter. He can, and if appropriate, he should pronounce innocence to one or both parties. No court can do that. Courts can only find you guilty or not guilty, never innocent, because no one is innocent in the world's eyes. But before Christ, a believer is and should always be innocent in his sight. And a Christian person can evaluate you in that light. Furthermore, a Christian can judge in a way that no court can do. Courts can only decide on legal matters. Are you guilty or not? Are you legally right or wrong? Christians can judge in a positive manner. I want you to think about this for a second, because there are positive judgments in this world. A beauty pageant is a positive judgment. The judges aren't going around saying, who's the ugliest person here? Who's the second ugliest person here? They're not. They're looking for the prettiest, the most beautiful person. Uh, In a race, they don't look, well, who's the slowest? Let's shoot that guy. No, who won the race? Who ran the fastest? Who did the best? Christians can look at it in a positive way, not in a punitive way. Actually, a good Christian counselor is going to see the good in both sides. He's going to see the right in both sides. He's going to take you both into consideration. Try to find out what you both can agree on and build on that. Furthermore, Christian agreements or settlements can be individualized, tailored to each situation, just you and just the other person. In other words, precedent isn't very important. Hey, this is what happened this time. This is what happened that time. That's what we're going to do this time. Courts do that. Christians don't have to do that. You know something else that's really cool? Christian settlements can be completely confidential. No one has to know except you and the person with whom you have a a dispute. Legal matters are publicized, published, precedent is set. Everybody knows. You've hung your dirty laundry out for the whole world to see. And, in my opinion, Christian settlements can be completely fair. They take everything into consideration. Special circumstances that might uh, influence how the thing is going to be done. Do you realize how important that is? Do you realize how important that is? In any case, I think you should be able to walk away from a Christian counseling session feeling right about yourself, right with the other person, and right before God. And no court is going to give you that. No court that I know of would even try. So what's the bottom line? Are you presently suing a believer? Settle it. Do everything you can to settle it. And 
I know this can be difficult. I don't, personally, I don't think you get a lot of support, especially if you've gathered a fan base that's cheering you on in this court case you've got. And there are some unscrupulous lawyers that don't like settlements because they make more money when you fight it out in court. But as for you, stay out of court if you possibly can. No, no. I know it's perfectly right to defend yourself if you're being legally attacked. Wives are certainly free and and clear to defend themselves if they and their children are being abused. But Paul leaves no doubt that Christian judgment is a better option and we should accept its outcome. Okay, may not be perfect, may not get the decision we wanted or have our be our best option, but trust me on this one. The person you're having a dispute with isn't perfect, and neither are the elders who are going to have to make this decision. It all works well if we remember that we're human. We all make mistakes. None of us know everything. We're all trying to make it through this world and through this process as good as we possibly can. And one more thing, and I, I regret having to mention it, but it's a reality in today's church. There are... There definitely are Christian crooks. I've known some. Thankfully, only a few. But these are people who cheat and steal and lie and then throw Bible verses at you if you notice or if you complain. When you confront a person like that, it's probably the most frustrating thing you'll ever experience in your Christian life. They are very difficult to judge. The elders even have trouble. The guy knows the Bible probably better than they do. Keeps quoting verses that he's memorized. What does the Bible say? Don't even eat with that guy. Don't hang out with them. Don't associate with them. Take it to the elders if you want, but you know, don't expect anything a lot. These types of situations and these types of people are extremely tough to evaluate. But God is the real judge. The Christian who is abusing you in eternity will find himself surrounded by people just like him. And in the same situation that the great pastor Jonathan Edwards described, sinners in the hands of an angry God. And you can't even come close to doing what God will do there. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Not only bad in the next life, it's going to be bad for them in this life too. Paul writes in verse 9, Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Okay, what exactly is that? What's the kingdom of God? Put simply, it is wherever God is in control. Where his commandments are obeyed. Where his people conduct themselves in accordance with his will. Because we all know, hey, things are wonderful when that happens. Therefore, the kingdom of God is something right here and right now. But it, and temporarily and, and in part, but it is going to be reality for eternity in totality in the next life. Okay. The kingdom of God is present The kingdom of God is also coming. The point is this. Sinners will never see it. Not in this world and not in the next. 
And it will not be because of their creed. It will be because of their conduct. The list is gruesome. Listen to this. Sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, male prostitutes, homosexuals, thieves, the greedy, drunkards, slanderers, swindlers. Yikes! That includes an awful lot of people. And some of us, when we think about our past, might get a little nervous. All of us have done things we're not proud of. All of us were and probably still are sinners. The difference is we were forgiven. So if you're concerned about this, I want you to remember what Paul is talking about. It's conduct. What do you do? And what are you doing now? Because what you do is what you are. And in the church, you are either a forgiven sinner and a born-again believer, or you are something else. I can give you an example. When I was a pastor in Rochester, New York, I was invited by a panel of pastors to meet with a group of homosexual men. And these guys were eager to talk. As a matter of fact, they requested the meeting. So we met at their request. Setup was like this. We pastors would talk about our Christian beliefs and why we acted on them. And the homosexuals will talk about their homosexuality and why they acted on that. Surprisingly, we had a great talk. And when it was over, I talked to a couple of the guys, and my thoughts were these. Why identify yourself with sexual activity when it's such a small part of your life? Because regardless of your preference, you only spend a little bit of time doing it. Why identify yourself with that? And by the way, when I'm counseling young people, I say the same thing. You think sex is so important? What are you going to do the rest of your life? The other six and a half and six and three quarters days that you're going to be existing, what are you going to make of yourself? Or are you going to be thinking about just those few minutes? Aren't you much more of a person and a much larger person than that? Shouldn't shouldn't you want a life that is much more profound than that? Nope, they all said no. Very respectfully, they explained their sexual preference was the most important thing in their lives. And I expressed, regret about it. I was respectful, but when I left, I knew two things. Number one, there is no such thing as a practicing homosexual Christian. They will be forever double-minded. Two, these poor guys would never see the kingdom of God in this world or the next unless they've confessed and repented and come to Christ for forgiveness and salvation, at which point the perversion would stop. How harsh, the world would say. How judgmental. Yeah, right, and how true. This is the word of God, the source of all truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, to wrap this up, I want to conclude by saying negative, that uh, justice is both negative and positive. When we take a criminal to court, we hope for a conviction of the, of the guilt and an appropriate judgment for the crime. That's the way it is. In fact, if a criminal gets off on some kind of technicality or something, what do we call it? Oh, that's a miscarriage of justice. What about us? What about here in the church? Because we're all guilty. We all deserve punishment. We all need forgiveness. We all have problems in our past. And that's why Paul writes verse 13. Because he says, and that is what some of you were, but you were washed, 
you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. In Christ, you were washed, forgiven. In Christ, you were sanctified, set apart for his service. In Christ, you were justified, just as though your sins had never happened. You want to hit the delete button on your past? Accept Christ. It is the only religion in the world that deals exclusively with the future. All because of the sacrifice of Christ, with the presence and power of the Holy Spirit in your life. The body, your body, is meant for the Lord. The Lord, your Lord, is meant for the body, yours. You are His, He is yours. Let him and his people do the judging. Anything left undone or done wrongly in this world will be corrected in the next because there is a true and ultimate Supreme Court before which we will all stand. There is, for all eternity and for all to see, there will be true justice for all. And I want you to think about that great white throne scene that we read about. Have you ever thought about the fact that all the evidence has been heard? All of the decisions have been done. At the beginning of the process, the God sitting on the throne says, sheep over here, goats over there. Goats, the lake, the hot one. Sheep, heaven. You ever thought about that? You're guilty, that's it. You're all guilty. It's just that you guys are still guilty. You guys have been forgiven. Christ stood In your stand at the trial, you're forgiven. Think about what that means. Think about what that means in eternity here. The Christian that you're disputing is loved by God. The Christian with whom you're disputing is forgiven, justified, sanctified by God. So are you. And whatever difference you may have in this world right now is nothing compared to the magnificent reality which you share. Think that way. Talk that way. Act that way. And Amos 5.24 will be forever true in your life. But let justice roll like a river. Righteousness like a never-failing stream. Let's pray. Lord, you do so much for us we don't deserve. We, you're the judge, but you've already pardoned us. There is a courtroom, but we don't even have to go there. There is the halls of justice, but the halls of heaven are full of mercy and forgiveness, truth and love and joy. And we get to go and be part of that. Lord, make this church a place of justice. Make our church a source of joy, hope, peace, forgiveness, unity, care, compassion, and friendship. Make us now, as much as you can, what you have already made us for heaven. And we pray this in Jesus' name and for his glory only.
Amen. Well, thanks for uh, coming out today. Glad you could be with us. Why don't you all stand? And I'll say a prayer and dismiss us. Please uh, bow your heads with me. Father, thank you for this word today. Thank you for the truth that we have heard. May we, Father, not just be hearers of your word, but may we be doers. Give us your grace to accomplish that in Christ's name. Amen. All right. God bless you. Have a great afternoon. We'll see you next week.